Good morning, FCF. We are continuing our series called The New You 2.0, and it's based on a portion of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 and 49. It says that we take on the physical image of the first Adam. He was uh, the man that was in the Garden of Eden who couldn't even resist one temptation. But then it says to those of us who in this life return to God or are reconciled to God by putting our trust in Christ, God as He's revealed fully in Christ, we put our trust in Him and become His followers. It says that we are destined to wear the image of the second Adam. Jesus is called the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, or the man from heaven. That's the 2.0 version of ourselves. The 2.0 version, Jesus was born not in the Garden of Eden, where there was no sin, but He was born, as it were, in the Garden of Evil, and yet He overcame all temptation and sin. So, to give you an idea of what an extraordinary upgrade th this is going to be, by the way, uh, it starts in this life, our partaking of the 2.0 Christ-like version of ourselves, but it culminates at the second coming of Christ when we receive our resurrection bodies and then we are forever face to face with God. But let me read you a portion of scripture from 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12, and it gives you a sense of what a tremendous upgrade is going to occur. It says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That last part, it says that, that I'm going to know God fully just the way He fully knows me. I'm going to understand Him. I'm going to understand all the, the things about the universe and His workings that I cannot understand now. This means God's going to turn on all the hardware up here. There's a lot more horsepower up here than what He's allowing us to use right now. And you can see why, because we, we take the little bit of horsepower we have and we make nuclear weapons. At any rate, this gives you an idea. Let, let me give you one more. This is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. We looked at it last week. It says, He, meaning Jesus, He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like His own, using the same power with which He will bring everything under His control. That's 2.0 us finalized, fi finished. That's the massive transformational component that Jesus just does by His own power. However, however, and this is what's important, it is God's intention that this 2.0 transformation starts for you and I as Christ followers in this life. And this whole series is about how we can see measurable, significant progress in the 2.0, and it has an awful lot to do with view, our perspective, how we view things. So, let me start by giving you an interesting story. There is a lady, uh, her name is Gloria McKenzie, and she won the Powerball. Now, now, to give you an idea of how extraordinary that is, I wrote this down. The odds of winning Powerball are one, one chance in 292,201,338. If you want to round it off, it's about one. You have about a, about a one in 300 million dollar, 300 million chances of winning the Powerball. Through the years, it's so funny. I've had, I've had people come to me and say, Randy, when I win that lottery, 
I'm going to take care of this church. And I'm like, okay, that'll be good. <laughs> so far, it hasn't happened. I, I hold off telling them, you know, you really shouldn't probably be gambling. You know, I'm like, God, if they want to give the money to the church for the sake of your kingdom, we'll, we'll get forgiveness on that one. But anyway, you have about a one in 300 million chances of winning Powerball. However, however, people do win. You know it and I know it. And this lady... Her name was uh, Gloria McKenzie. In 2013, she won $590 million. $590 million. Now, here's my question about Gloria McKenzie. Do you suppose she felt unusually, unusually fortunate and surprisingly able? I mean, $500, $590 million, you're able to do a lot of things that you couldn't do before. Do you think that's how she felt? Well, let me tell you the rest of Gloria's story, and I'm hoping that there will be an image of Gloria that will appear on your screens as well. It so happens that in 2013, when Gloria McKenzie won the Powerball, she was 85 years old. Now, this creates an interesting situation. So, if we could get inside Gloria's mind, in her, in her heart, I wonder if she felt, you know, unusually fortunate or unusually unfortunate. Do you, do you see where I'm coming from? She, she wins the Powerball against these 300 million to one odds, but she gets it at 85. Does she feel unusually fortunate or unusually unfortunate? Likewise, was she surprisingly able or was she surprisingly unable? There's a lot of things you can do at 25 that you can't do at 85, right? So it would have been interesting to get inside her mind and know what she felt. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what she felt. You don't know what she felt. But I can tell you this. The quality of her life will not be measured by the money that she won. The quality of her life will be measured by whether she felt in her mind unusually fortunate and surprisingly able or unusually unfortunate and surprisingly unable. That will determine the quality of her life. It will also determine what kind of character development she experiences. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> Each and every one of us has a view of ourselves. It's there in our minds all the time. Most of us are not aware of it. Most of us have a very hard time uh, getting a clear picture of it, but it is there. And what I want to present to you in this message is this. I think and I believe in my heart that in that image that we carry of ourselves, we tend to have a slant one way or another when it comes to this particular element. I believe that some of us feel, you know, unusually fortunate. And I believe that some of us feel unusually unfortunate. That's the way we view ourselves. No matter what comes out of our mouth, the way we actually view ourselves, we either view ourselves as unusually fortunate or unusually unfortunate. Let me go further. I believe that we see ourselves, we view ourselves as surprisingly able. Man, we're just surprised that we're able to do some things. Or we view ourselves as surprisingly unable. And that view, that view 
is going to determine the quality of our life, the development of the content of our character, more importantly, the 2.0 version that God wants us to start to experience in this life, that Christ-like version of ourselves. It will be helped or hindered based on, based on these two views or the, this, this holistic view of ourselves as either being unusually fortunate or unusually unfortunate or surprisingly able or surprisingly unable. All right, I want to take us back to our, our, our singular subject, um, this, this unnamed man from John 5. I'm going, to, I'm going to read you part of the text again. So let me start reading in John 5. and I'm going to just pick up in verse 5. It says, A certain man was there, and we know he was at Bethsaida, where lots of very ill people hung out and they received offerings and things. It says, A certain man was there who had been diseased 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that for a long time now he had been diseased, he said to him, Do you want to be made whole? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But in the meantime, when I am about to come, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath day. The key there is that you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Carrying your bed would have been considered work. Verse 14, Jesus finds him later. Sometime later, Jesus found him in the temple. Notice this, the man didn't even know who Jesus was, but Jesus knew when to find him the first time and he knew when to find him the second time. Jesus always knows where we are. We don't always know where he is. Sometime later, Jesus found him in the temple, in the temple and again spoke to him. Take a look at your body. It has been made whole and strong. So avoid a life of sin or else a calamity greater than any disability may befall you. So this is our key passage. And we want to look at this man and we want to ask ourselves as a recipient of a stunning miracle. I mean, this man had been uh, an invalid, paralyzed likely for 38 years of his life. And Jesus instantly, with a word, with a phrase, with a sentence, uh, completely heals this man physically. And he is, he is not only able to get up, he's able to carry his bed, he's able to walk, he's presenting himself to others in the temple. It, it, it is an extraordinary miracle of the highest sort. So here's the question, how did this man, how did he view himself? What was his view of himself? Did he feel... For the rest of his life, unusually fortunate. Man, to be a recipient of a miracle like this, unusually, or did he feel unusually unfortunate? Man, 38 years of my life, I lived in agony. 38 years of my life are gone. How did he feel? Unusually fortunate or unusually unfortunate? Likewise, did he feel surprisingly able? Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And suddenly, what he could not do for 38 years, he was able to do now based on the command of Jesus. He trusted in it and he felt the power of God working through him. And he's able. Did he feel surprisingly able for the rest of his life or surprisingly unable? In other words, did he live with that image of 38 years of disability, of helplessness, of humiliation? Or did he live in the light of the surprising ability that he had from that moment when Jesus said, Rise, take up your mat and walk? Because whatever view, whatever view of himself that he had, 
I can guarantee you that determined the actual quality of his life, the development of the content of his character, more importantly, whether he ever started to, in this life, experience the, the manifestation of the 2.0 Christ-like version of himself that God intends each and every one of us. Folks, I've said this again and again. I, I, I have a, a problem with a lot of the messaging in the Christian community. It seems like that we, we think God is in the transportation business, that all He wants to do is get us to say the right words so that He can transport us to heaven. God is in the transformation business, not the transportation business. This life is meant to be a developmental journey. First of all, God waits to see if we will, as He reveals Himself and proves Himself trustworthy, if we will come to trust in Him and want Him and follow Him by our own free will. After that, then, He wants us to walk with Him and develop because we were always designed by Christ and for Christ and we never can become fully human and fully alive. We never develop 1.0 or 2.0 until we are walking in union, heart union with our Creator. And this life is meant to be a developmental journey. Okay, so let's start with that question. Did the man feel unusually fortunate or unfortunate? Let's start with the miracle. Nobody's going to deny this was an extraordinary miracle. But miracles, I want to just say right off the bat, they have limitations. There are some people that, that, that are always looking for a miracle. But I'm going to tell you some things about miracles that probably we don't think through. We, we, don't get me wrong, we'd all like to experience a miracle. But I wonder how many of us would want to lay for 38 years paralyzed in order to experience a miracle. So let's look at a few things about miracles. First of all, they don't endure. Miracles don't endure. This man, sooner or later, became sick again and died. We know that. So even though he was given health for a season, it was just for a season. Miracles in this life do not endure. They don't go straight through into eternity. The second thing about miracles is they don't erase the past. Uh, this man, he suffered tremendously for 38 years. He must have felt so humiliated. He must have felt so deprived. He must have felt so alone. He must have felt so unwanted. He must have felt so insecure, inadequate, inferior, unloved, unwanted, excluded. 38 years he felt that. This miracle, as extraordinary as it was, it, it didn't necessarily erase the past. Um, miracles, miracles, they, they have a, a tremendous power to take us experientially to a different place, but we still have to process the past. The third thing about miracles is they don't guarantee lasting spiritual 2.0 impact. You know, we don't know anything about this man. Uh, folks, maybe you've never noticed this, but in the Gospels, Jesus heals thousands of people. There are many pastors that talk about just throngs of people uh, pushing against him and he's healing them all. We know that he fe feeds 5,000 at one point, he fe feeds 4,000 at another point. Miracle. Thousands of people were recipients of miracles. Do you know how many disciples, real followers of Jesus we can count after he's crucified and resurrected? We can only count 120 for sure on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. So, 
So just because, you got to hear this now, just because somebody experiences a miracle, it does not guarantee that they will be reconciled to God because reconciliation to God calls for my personal trust. I have to open myself to take in God's character as He's revealed it, and then I decide if I'm going to put my trust in Him. He's my Creator. Am I going to trust Him and follow Him, or am I going to follow myself? Miracles do not guarantee conversions. I, I hear people through the years, you know, oh, if we had miraculous power, you know, the gospel would, you know, prosper. No, no. There is no reason to believe that miracles cause people to be converted. Miracles do one thing. They get people's attention. And then once God has our attention, we will decide if we are going to trust in Him and follow Him or not. The third thing about miracles is this. They don't guarantee a good future. We don't know anything about this man. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know how he ended? Wouldn't it be wonderful to know if he became a follower of Jesus? We don't know that. It would be so cool to know that he became a follower of Jesus and he was one of the 72 that Jesus sent out. Or he was one of the 120 waiting on the day of Pentecost for the Spirit of God to come and empower them to tell the world about Jesus all the time everywhere. But we don't know that. And if you need some evidence, that miracles do not guarantee a good future. There's just one name. There's just one name you need in mind. It is the name Judas, who was one of the twelve, who himself was given for a season the power to do miracles when he was sent out by Jesus. Jesus sent the twelve out to do miracles and to preach the kingdom of God. He did this, and we know that G Judas was never a follower of Jesus, never trusted in Jesus. And we know that his future certainly was dire and dark. Miracles do not guarantee a good future. We, we don't know this man's future. And so my point is this, this man from that moment on, from that, after 38 years, he could have said, man, I am the most blessed, I'm the most fortunate, <laughs> I'm the most fortunate man on the planet, or, or, he could have said, this is great, but it can never give me back the 38 years of agony and heartbreak and misery. The, the, the destruction that those 38 years did to me, no miracle can restore. He might have still considered himself the most, one of the most unfortunate people because he had to live that way. He might have been one of those people that, as I mentioned once before, he said, you know, my best years are gone. You can't give that back to me with a miracle. By the way, that's a lie, like I said in a past message. You can't experience your best days in this life. I don't care how long we live. I don't care who we are. I don't care what our circumstances. I don't care how wonderful our circumstances or how wonderful our relationships. You and I will never experience one of our best days in this life. Our best days are all ahead. It's in that that coming dimension. It's in that eternal world where there's no sickness, sorrow, pain, death, and evil will never exist again. Our best days are all ahead. Don't ever buy into that lie. My best days are behind me. Because if you do, you will have a hard time experiencing 2.0 development in your life and the quality of your life will suffer because of it all unnecessarily because it's not true. But that man could have lived there. He could have said, you know, my best days are gone. Yeah, I can walk now, but big deal. All walking does is make me equal to most other people. All walking does is make me equal to some of the most evil people. There, there are rotten people, evil people, murderers that can walk, and, and, and I'm no better. I, big deal, so I can walk. He could have lived there. Instead of thinking of himself one of the most fortunate people on the planet, he could have thought, I'm still one of the most unfortunate people. That evil person's been walking all their life, and I'm just now 
See, see it's, all, it's all up here, folks. It's all up here. The quality of our life, the content of our character, 1.0 or 2.0 development, it's determined, it's determined by our view of ourselves. Let's pause. And I know, I know it's really hard to measure these things on the spot. But maybe you want to get alone with God and probe this a little further some other time. But it's a good question to ask ourselves. Do I live with a sense? I am one of the most fortunate people to ever walk this earth. I am so blessed. Is that the sense that fills your heart and my heart? Or... Or could it be that inside, inside, we feel like we've been victimized, we've been cheated. We were entitled to something better, but we were deprived. And we are one of the most unfortunate people. We're never going to experience what we want in this life. And so we just dwell on that. If that's where we're at, we're not only frustrating the work of God, but we're doing unnecessary uh, deprivation to ourselves. Listen to some verses that show the attitude that uh, God would have us to have from um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, once again. In verse 9, he's describing himself. He says, For I'm the least of all the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Why, Paul? Why? Why do you feel that way? Because I persecuted God's church. Here's this man who did more for the kingdom of God than any human being that's ever lived. When he wrote this, he had been a follower of Jesus for about 20 years. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, he gives a little list, a little spontaneous running list of some of the experiences he had had in 20 years of being a follower of Christ. Let me just give you some of them. You can read them on your own sometime in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 28. He says in that list, he says, in his first 20 years of being a Jesus follower, he was in prison multiple times. He said he was beaten multiple times. He said he was given 39 lashes, five different occasions. He said he was beaten with rods. That's a caning, we would call it today, on three different occasions. He says one time he was stoned. Folks, when they stoned people in biblical days, they didn't take these stones where you throw like a hardball. No, 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 no. They put somebody down in a pit, and they took stones that you pick up with two hands, and you threw down at multiple people, throwing down huge stones at the same time. Paul said, once I was stoned, meaning that experience was his. He goes on to say, I, I knew what it was to be in danger everywhere I went, whether I was in the country or by rivers or in the city or false, false Christians around me. He says, I was in danger constantly. He says, I was shipwrecked three different times. And he says, in one time I spent a whole night and a whole day in the open sea. He, he just goes on, he says, and on top of all that, there was the pressure of my concern for the churches. So this man, Paul, who says in 1 Corinthians 15, I, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle he was so grateful. He felt so fortunate to be called an apostle. And he was trying to process his past, but it still bothered him that he had persecuted the church of Jesus. Listen to how he describes himself again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. He says, Christ Jesus entered the world to rescue sinners. I realize that I was the worst of them all. And that because of this very fact, God was, listen to this, part 
particularly merciful to me, particularly, I, I was unusually fortunate, particularly merciful to me. It was a kind of a demonstration of the extent of Christ's patience toward the worst of men to serve as an example to all who in the future should trust Him for eternal life. Do you hear his heart? This man felt, he felt like he was the most fortunate human being alive. He went on to serve Jesus for 32 years fully. He went through many more hardships and ultimately he was killed by Nero. He, he had his head cut off for his faithfulness to Jesus. But he walked through this life with a beautiful 2.0 manifestation of the life of Christ ever developing in him because, because he viewed himself as unusually fortunate. Second thing, I wonder if this man felt himself surprisingly able or unable. 38 years he was helpless, he was an invalid, he was paralyzed. Jesus speaks one word and suddenly he's able to do what he could not do for 38 years. He was a complete dependent. He had to depend on others to do everything for him. Completely humiliated lifestyle for 38 years. But then Jesus enables him instantly to become to a measure that every human is independent. What Did he live the rest of his life surprisingly able. Man, I am just surprised at how able I am to do things. Or surprisingly unable. In other words, did, did he live thinking, well, yeah, I'm, I'm able now to do what everybody does, even the most evil. I can walk and take care of myself a bit better. But for 38 years, I was ripped. I was deprived. I was victimized. I, I, I had so much stolen from me. I didn't deserve that. Did he live there? or? Or did he live surprised at his ability? Let's look a little closer. Divine given ability. Divine, you know, Jesus gave him a power, gave him the power to do things he could not do. Jesus wants to do the same for you and I. You were always designed, I was always designed to live in a union of trust with our Creator Jesus. And in that union of trust, as He tells us how He designed us to live, and He gives us exhortations, do this, don't do that. He gives us commands, do this, don't do that. He gives us manifestations of His own beautiful character. They are all invitations of what we are destined to become. But God wants us to enter into a cooperative. Jesus, remember what He said to this man. He says, do you, do you want to be made whole? He, he didn't just heal the man without the man's permission. Do you want to be made whole? And then He tells him, He says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Well, the man still had to cooperate. God wants a, a cooperative with us. So, divinely given ability, it can bring some wonderful things. It brought some wonderful things to this man. We're not quite sure how he processed it. Number one, divinely given ability, and we all have a lot of that, whether we know it or not, it first of all brings opportunities. For 38 years, this man really had very, very few opportunities. He laid at the you know, porticos, the porches of Bethesda, and he begged. And that was his life, day in and day out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out. Very few opportunities. But suddenly when Jesus gives, gives him this ability to function, to walk normally, he has endless opportunities. That's why Jesus, by the way, finds him in the temple in verse 14 and says, Hey, 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 whatever you do, don't, don't pour yourself, don't throw yourself into a life of sin. You see, he had the freedom to use his life in multiple ways now. He says, don't do that because something even worse will happen. Sin is ever our enemy. It is ever a destructive force. God does not judicially punish us. 
sin punishes us itself. It, it is like exposing ourselves to radiation. It's not the fear of being arrested. It is the fear of the in, inevitable damage that it's going to do within us. God wants to rescue us from sin because sin destroys, deteriorates, ruins us, uh, destroys the design that God wants us to wear, which is the design image of Jesus himself. So it gives us opportunities, but with opportunities, this man now had responsibilities. You know, his life was pretty simple. It wasn't very complex. You just laid there and you begged. Everybody had to do everything for him, and he knew it and they knew it. They knew the man was helpless. His life might not have been pleasant in a lot of ways, but it was very simple. It was very easy. The routines were there. But with these new God-given opportunities came God-given responsibilities. People were going to look at him differently. He had to look at himself differently. He was going to have to, for example, figure out how to provide his own housing, uh, how, to, how to provide a living. He was going to have to develop some vocational skills. He was going to have to learn how to plan. He was going to have to learn how to do lots of things that he always had done for him up to this point. There were opportunities, but with opportunities and ability comes responsibility. He was not going to be a dependent anymore. Now people were going to look at him as a, a person that should be able to contribute, rightly so. That, that, that's a big turnaround. When God gives us ability, it brings responsibility and the capacity to contribute. It's a wonderful capacity, but it does bring its own burden, so to speak, with us. The other thing about it, is it brings challenges because as God gave this man this new ability, he was going to have to learn all kinds of new skills, vocational skills, like I say, but also relational skills. He had related to people on one level. He was the victim. He was the helpless one. He was the beggar. He was the dependent. He was the taker. Everybody else was the giver. He was now going to have to learn to relate to people in an entirely different way. He was going to have to relate to people from the standpoint of we're equals and I can contribute and I can serve you and I can help you and I have to look at you as one that may need help from me. Very different. He, he was going to have to learn a new language even in talking with people. What's going to be the, the language of I'm a victim? You can see that. It was going to be the language of, hey, we're, we're two equals now and we're going to have to figure out a different way to you know, find unity amongst ourselves. So, the ability that God gives us, it brings with it some responsibilities and complexities, but it does bring its own confident dependence. That, that sounds like a contradiction, confident dependence. Let, let me try to explain. Um, this man was unable to do anything for 38 years, but when Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk, he was suddenly able to do what he could not do on his own. In other words, the word of Jesus, the will of Jesus, became the enablement for him to do what he could not do. Confident dependence. He could have lived the rest of his life saying, man, I want to follow Jesus. I want to learn the will of God. I want to learn the design of God for my life because now I know something that whatever God tells me to do, whatever God wants me to do, whatever God wills for me to do, whatever God designed me to do, I can do. It is an invitation to an extraordinary new level of existence. He could have lived with confident dependence. 
I can't, but Jesus can. And what I can't do now, if I start to do it, if Jesus told me to do it, if I start to do it, I might do it poorly, it might do it awkwardly, but if I keep on doing it humbly, I'll finally be able to do it well, and sooner or later it will become who I am because Jesus always intended it so. This is the way character develops, folks. We, we start off doing something simply because God says do it. It's the way I design you. It's for your good. It's, it's, it's my will. And we start off doing it usually pretty poorly and weakly and awkwardly. I doubt that this man walked and you know, stood real well initially, but, but at any rate, he had a lot to learn and so do we. But we start off doing the will of God awkwardly, poorly, sometimes two steps forward, three steps back. But if we stay humble and we keep walking, we keep moving with God, we keep getting up if necessary, then what we once could not do, we are able to do. And if we persevere, we'll not only be able to do it, we'll be able to do it really well and we'll be able to do it easily until it becomes who we are. Look, look at the, you know, this thing from a, a musician standpoint. There's a time in every musician's life where they had never picked up their instrument. So technically, they could not play, whether it's a guitar or a saxophone, whatever it is. They couldn't do it. They were unable, but they started. They made a decision to do it, and they started doing it, and they did it really poorly at first, but they persevered. They kept on humbly sticking with it. They kept on practicing trying to improve, practicing, trying to improve, practicing, trying to improve. They persevered until they became not just one that could play the instrument, not just one that could play a few songs, but a musician. That's a transformation of character. Okay, that's, that's a good analogy of the way the Spirit of God wants us to work developmentally in this life. So, surprisingly able or surprisingly unable. Confident dependence. Now, here, here's the one last thing. When we start to walk based on God's Word, Jesus said, rise, stand up, walk, take up your bed and walk. When we start to walk in confidence in God's Word, other things, other surprises come, other things develop in us that we didn't even know were there. We have all these dormant capacities because you have to understand we, we were meant to wear the full image of Christ from the start. So that means, think this through, if I am always, was always designed to wear the image of Christ, my Creator, that means that dormant within me is all the compassion of Jesus. Dormant within me is all the capacity to forgive of Jesus. Dormant within me is all the capacity for unselfish devotion to the good of others that is in Jesus. We could just go right on down the list, but it's dormant in me. It's, it's not alive. I, I don't have the capacity initially. But as I start to walk with Christ, trusting in Him, trusting in His Word, trusting Him for the power to do what I naturally, to start off with, cannot do, these dormant capacities, they, they start to come alive along the way. This is how God moves us through this life, gets us to that place of maximum effectiveness where we discover the gifts that He's given, the talents that He's given, the temperament type that He's given. He puts us in just the right set of circumstances with just the right people. All these things come together and we finally hit maturity and maximum effectiveness. But this only happens as we stay moving dependently on God, but confidently. Whatever he says I can do, I can do. Uh, let's do a few verses that just kind of say this really better than what I have. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, Not that we are competent by ourselves to claim that anything comes from us. Rather, our competence is from God. This man could live the rest of his life with this attitude of adventure. You know what? I can do anything that God wants me to do. 
His, his will, His commands are open invitations for adventure in my life. He's the source of my competence. I'm not competent, but He is. Listen to Paul's other words from Philippians 4.13. He wrote this from a prison cell. He said, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. That says it all, doesn't it? Paul says, I, I don't have any confidence in myself. I don't have any confidence, and I can't do anything, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Folks, we, we were made by Christ and for Christ. We were meant to live an inspired life. We were meant to be full of enthusiasm, full of the energy of God that gives us enablement to do His will and to live the way He designed us to live, to fill this universe with His love, His loving image in our own unique uh, fashion. You know, God's given each of us a unique identity, but it's meant to be a Christ-like identity. So I wonder how this guy lived. I wonder if he lived the rest of his life surprisingly able, thinking, I can't believe all the things I'm able to do now because of Christ. Or did he live thinking, I was cheated, man. I was ripped. Yeah, I'm, I'm able to do some things now, but that does not make up for the agony I suffered for 38 years. Listen, folks, each of us will choose where we're going to live. What view of ourselves will we take? Will we view ourselves? I don't care what your circumstances have been. We, we, we've all got our circumstances. A lot of things happen to all of us that are out of our control. A lot of things happen to us that we would not want to happen. Are we going to live, though, from the standpoint of when we've put our trust in Christ and received His grace, His mercy, His favor, His promises for the future, are we going to live there and see ourselves as unusually fortunate or are we going to view ourselves always as that person that was cheated we're victimized because I'm going to tell you it's, it's going to it's going to deeply affect the quality of your life quality of my life as well as the developmental content of our character and our ability to to see 2.0 version of ourself existing in ourself and then likewise are we going to see ourselves surprisingly able or surprisingly unable. I'm, I mean people that just dwell dwell on the fact that they're cheated. They, they, they weren't given the skills. They weren't given the opportunities. They weren't given the training. On and on and on and on it goes. But you can do more than you can imagine. Start now. Trust your God. Just keep moving with Him and you'll see you're surprisingly able. You're going to find, you, you'll find yourself doing things that you never dreamt you could do. But it comes in a, in a trusting dependence. It, it, it's a journey. It's an experience. It's, it's an adventure with you and your Creator. And you never feel strong in yourself, but you start gaining confidence in Him. Surprisingly able. Now, I want to close in a bit of an unusual way. I'm going to give you kind of, kind of a formula um, because here's the thing. When it comes to our view of ourself, you and I have a lot of control. Let me rephrase that. We have complete control. In other words, I can choose how I'm going to view myself. That man had a choice. He could have viewed himself for the rest of his life as unusually fortunate or unusually unfortunate. He could have viewed himself as surprisingly able or surprisingly unable. He was going to make a choice, consciously or unconsciously. You and I can make a choice. Now what I want to do though is I want to help you. I want, I want to give you a, a tried and true, trustworthy, biblical-based formula 
for how we can, we can kind of tilt the choice mechanism in the way, of course, we all want it to go so that we can experience more 2.0 transformation in this life. We're not going to experience perfect transformation in this life. That comes at the end where I started this, this message, you know, at that, that time where he'll transform these bodies of ours and so forth and turn all the lights on in our minds. But we can experience a lot in this life. So here's the formula. Here's the way it goes. Perspective plus M. Now, M, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hold off telling you what it is for a minute, but, but it should show on the screen. Perspective plus M equals our governing attitude slash or mood. Now, what do you mean, Randy, governing attitude or mood? We all have a governing attitude or, or our mood, and it's from that, from that, that we have what I'm going to call the spiritual soil of our soul. Jesus had talked a lot about soil. Remember the parable of the sower? Uh, you know, the seed was good. The seed was God's word. It was good, but it depended on the soil. The soil is the content of our heart. It, it was our governing attitude. It was our mood. It was our receptivity or lack thereof. So the, the spiritual soil. Now let me give it to you the whole thing. Perspective plus M. M stands for meditation. But I'm not going to just leave that like that. I'm going to unpack. I'm going to show you exactly the kind of meditation that you and I must do for this to have any impact. So here we go. So it's perspective, you know, the angle I'm looking at, what I'm seeing, plus meditation, those two together, equals my governing attitude or my mood, which equals the spiritual soil of my soul, which means how likely I am to see the fruits of the Spirit, the Christ-like 2.0 version of myself manifesting, or unlikely I am. So let me show you what I mean by meditation. I'm going to read you a verse from the New Testament book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and then I'm going to show you what, what this means to, to meditate in a way that will affect our perspective advantageously. Here's what it says. It says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Let this sink in. The Apostle Paul says, set your sights, set your mind, set your heart, whatever term you want to use, set your sights on the realities, the realities of heaven. Heaven is a real dimensional place. There's real people there. There's real existence. There's real conditions there. He says, for you and I, while we're on this earth, set, just keep doing it. Keep putting your mind, set your mind on the realities of heaven. Now let me go on. It goes on then and says this, the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Verse 2, think about the things of heaven. It tells me I need to think about them. I need to aim my thoughts at them. I need to, to dwell on them. Think about the things of heaven, not, not, not the things of earth. The things of earth are going to be the things that tend to get my attention, uh, particularly in our media-saturated age. But it says, don't do that, don't do that. Let your mind be set on the things of heaven, the realities of heaven. Now, I want to show you how this meditation works so that I can take my perspective, meditate on the things that are above, the things of heaven, in a way that it will produce the kind of governing attitude or mood that produces spiritually healthy soil in my soul from which grow 2.0 Christ-like characteristics. Okay, here's how you do that meditation, because, because if we don't do this 
in, in an actual fashion. It won't, in other words, if I just say to you, okay, so let's just keep thinking about heaven. Try that one time. <laughs> okay, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm going to think about heaven. I'm thinking about, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't benefit. Here's what you have to do. Let me show you the easiest way in the world. Maybe you've had a bad day. Maybe you've had a day where you were treated unfairly. Maybe you had a day where you felt sad. Maybe you had a day where you took a loss. Um, maybe you had a day where you were tormented, tormented by a regret from the past or some guilt or some shame. Uh, or, or maybe it was a day where you just felt terribly inferior, insecure. You felt unwanted. You felt unloved. You felt lonely. You felt rejected. You felt cheated. You felt victimized. I could go on and on and on. Okay, let that experience on earth trigger this thought of heaven. You're only here as a follower of Jesus on assignment for a short time. You're going to be here for about 2.4 hours of God's time if you live to be 100. They with the Lord is at 1,000 years, 1,000 years as day, 2 Peter 3.8. I'm just here. You're just here on a short assignment, a short business trip, a, a, a short task, a short mission. It's going to be short. So, my home, where my real family is, where my real life is, where my everlasting destiny is, it is a place where nobody ever feels secure or insecure ever. No one ever feels fear. Fear doesn't exist in heaven. The reality is heaven is a place where there is no such feeling as fear. There's no such feeling as being concerned about being rejected. Heaven is a place where everybody is wanted and loved and accepted and admired and liked and included. No one in heaven ever feels pain physically. No one in heaven ever feels pain mentally or emotionally or relationally. No one in heaven has heartbreak. The reality of heaven where I am to set my heart and mind, if I meditate on it and I let it color my perspective, it changes my governing mood. Let me show you how this works. Let me, let me make it real simple for you. Let's take two people. We started off with a lady that won the lottery, right? She won $590 million. So let's pretend we have that lady, which was a real lady. In 2013, she won the lottery. And we have another lady who was equally wealthy. She had $590 million worth of holdings, but she was deceived. She was tricked. Uh, she lost everything. She became penniless overnight, just as this one woman became a person that had $590 million overnight, this other woman becomes a person that loses $590 million overnight. You are going to go to each of these two people. Now, now think about this. If you go to the woman that just won $590 million, regardless of her age, is she more likely to be in a cheerful mood? Is she more likely to be kind? Is she more likely to be generous? Is she more likely to be caring? Is she more likely to be helpful? Is she more likely to be gentle and courteous and so forth? I know, I know there can be differences in people, but you know and I know it's a high likelihood she will. Let's go to the other person who's just lost everything instantly. What kind of, what kind of attitude, what kind of mood are they likely to have? Are they likely to be angry? Yeah. Are they likely to be sad? Are they likely to be depressed? Are they likely to be sullen? Are they likely to be full of self-pity and self-absorbed? Are they likely to even have thoughts of vengeance? I, I mean, you, you know this is true, and I'm not knocking them. I'm trying to show you something now. I'm trying to show you the two soils. Out of that one soil, that frame of mind, that mood, 
no 2.0 Christ-like characteristics are going to grow. But out of the other soil, the cheerfulness, the kindness, the unselfishness, the generosity, those things grow. When we set our minds on things above and we meditate, we say, my home is a place where I'm going to feel loved forever. My home is a place where I'm never going to feel fear again. I'm never going to be insecure again. I'm never going to feel inadequate again. I'm never going to feel left out again. That's my home. I'm just here on short assignment. It might be a war zone I'm in for now, but that's okay because I'm just serving my king until I go home. That's where the Scripture urges Jesus' followers to live. I'm going to read it one last time to you because that is how we put on 2.0. The 2.0 Christ-like characteristics grow out of that soil of this. Perspective plus meditation equals in you and I our governing attitude or our mood. And that governing attitude or mood is the spiritual soil from which those Christ-like 2.0 attributes will grow. Listen to Colossians 1 as time. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. So folks, assuming that you and I want so much to be like the one that gave Himself for us, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the destiny of God, it's the goal of God, and that 2.0 version of ourself, it has an awful lot to do in its development to how we view ourselves. So in closing, do you view yourself as unusually fortunate or unusually unfortunate? Do you view yourself as surprisingly able? I just can't believe what God enables me to do. Or surprisingly unable. As you compare yourself to people, you just feel like, oh, I've been cheated, I've been victimized. Folks, whichever mood, whichever perspective, that's the soil of our soul and the fruits are going to grow out of it are either going to be 1.0 fallen Adam fruits or they're going to be 2.0 risen Christ fruits. And you and I make the choice as to which will be growing and developing. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that this, this plan of yours, it stretched from eternity past into eternity future. Uh, we, can't, we can't just uh, fathom your genius. Your, your ways are just perfect. You've just created a, a context for all the right kind of development. We know that you're even allowing evil for a season so that you can destroy it forever. We know that it was wise and good and holy and generous to give free will to both humans and angels. We thank you for that. And, and Lord, how thankful we are that you have chosen to allow us to become like yourself. And you promise us you will see the job through. Help us to embrace the promises for 2.0 development, Christ-like, virtuous development in this life with the confidence you will finish the job when you come. Lord Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen.